Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This is a podcast that focuses on helping you develop your career as a faculty member. Our goal is to spark your enthusiasm and passion in one of our four main pillars of development. Creativity and humanism, scholarly practice, leadership, and of course, teaching and supervision. Throughout this podcast, we're aiming to bring you insightful and inspiring conversations that spark your interests and open up your mind to new ways to grow as a faculty member. Okay, have we sparked your interest yet? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hello, Mac PFD Spark listeners. I am delighted to bring you two of my colleagues from the Department of Family Medicine who will be speaking to us about principles in leadership. It's really hard sometimes to run really great meetings. And so Dr. Kathy Risden talks to me a little bit about how she has brought new art and life into her meetings. And so I definitely think that you should take a listen to what she has to say and maybe apply them to your next meeting, whether it's in Zoom or real life. The next is Dr. Jason Profetto, who is someone who's done a lot of leadership around the local area and is quite engaged as a healthcare provider, but also as an educator. So listen to his leadership journey because I think you'll find it very interesting. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Kathy Risden, and Dr. Risden's been someone who has been definitely a notable leader around these parts. She's currently a vice chair in the Department of Family Medicine, and she is someone who does think about leadership and interpersonal skills in a whole new level. So I wanted to invite her to chat with me a little bit about how we might be able to lead in everyday situations. So Kathy, can you introduce yourself and say hello to everyone? Yeah, Teresa, that's a that's a great little mini introduction. You're really good at starting off podcasts among many, many million things you're good at. And I'm really glad that you invited me into this conversation today to discuss a bit about what I think about micro micro skills of leadership, which can be set in motion by anyone who wants to be part of a team or wants to organize thought, direction and action or discovery with a group of people. So as you say right now, I'm a, I'm a family physician. I'm in the Department of Family Medicine, the lead for our clinical services and the vice chair. And you know, a lot of the work over the last six months in dealing with COVID and in the previous two years forming our Ontario health team has given me the chance to observe and practice many, many different situations of collective action thinking, and uh, I've been involved in the design of, of some of the consultation structures across all of those projects. So I'd love to talk a bit today about sort of boiling down what's organizationally possible on a big scale and thinking about what that means in, in just day-to-day moments of people gathering. And I, I do have a particular interest in a form that we call a meeting, which, as everyone can recognize, takes on many, many, many different shapes. Yes, just like there are people who can make a hamburger be a, a life-changing experience and those who maybe put a patty between two pieces of bread. <laughs> there, are, there are scales of master cuisine art and I think there's also a scale of how great a meeting can feel, right? I've been at meetings where they don't feel like meetings. They feel like you're just riffing on ideas with a bunch of people. And I've been at meetings where I'm like, not sure why I'm there. Right, right. Right, so yeah. I think that 
if we can get our world as we get more advanced and technology and meetings become more of a thing, I think we need to think about the architecture of those uh, things that we call meetings so yes, that they don't sure. run away with us. <laughs> yeah, we probably have a fairly impoverished meeting vocabulary too, you know, just for everyone to have a sense of what's, what's going on here as we gather together to communicate and what is it to plan? Is it to discover? Those are two common publicly stated purposes for meetings. I actually think meetings are often about preserving status quo and ensuring things don't change. And to become aware of those meetings is also really important and potentially helpful. Some of those are like meeting as theater, right? Like it's the decision's been made, but we're, we're going to maintain this status quo by performing in front of you and, and just letting you know, but you're not going to get to change the script. It's, it's not a writer's room kind of like gathering. It's a finished production of Hamilton on Disney Plus <laughs> sort of uh, quote unquote meeting, right? Like, so there's again, varying structures that we can create when we have the same word. And just like our, in different cultures, if you don't have good words for them, you can't di- differentiate between the types, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I love that. Meeting is theater for sure. We've all been to lots of those. So I think what I'm hearing from you right now is that before you go into planning one of these meetings or gatherings of people, to make it more plainly, you should think about your intention. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. Sorry, intention God. for sure. Yeah, no, intention for sure. And it's, there's, we, we would all be part of, say, a department or a work group that has um, committed to a a rhythm of regularly gathering. The first Wednesday of every month, we have our department education meeting and everyone has a belief about what you save to, what you save up or offer or discuss at that meeting. The utility of, of deeply examining our intention every month on a Wednesday morning is probably limited. So it's not to say that every meeting must have a deep purpose, but even that regularly standing meeting can probably be improved with some tweaks and some thoughts about what actually happens when folks gather. So I think that the notion of how you, how you plan in advance is important, if only to note that you've got a routine structure that everyone seems pleased with. And, you know, I'm sort of jumping to the end of some types of meetings. I think the ability for to build the group's trust in actually reflecting on whether the meeting was successful or not is super important. So, you know, starting a meeting with an understanding of how you'll figure out if it worked or not sort of seems paradoxical, but I think is really, really helpful. That's challenging. That's challenging because again, we're all so socialized to play our part in all of the meetings of which in which we participate. So theater is such a great metaphor for meetings that it can actually be vaguely distressing for people at the end of a shared experience to be invited to say, okay, how did that work? Did we you know, how did that work for you as an individual? Did you feel engaged? Did you feel your participation mattered? Do you walk away knowing something that's going to be important for your work or important for our collective mission? Or did you feel it was a good chance to catch up on email and you wish you didn't have to be there? To actually get people to be honest in answering that question isn't a straightforward thing. Yeah, and it's something you have to think about, like you said, before the meeting even starts. Because if you don't have good psychological safety, if you don't create that during the meeting, no one's ever going to say, well, I've, I burned through 72 emails today, yeah, right? Like yeah. that's not going to be a key performance indicator. <laughs> that that's right. People are going to exactly. report if they don't feel safe. But 
I think that if you can create that safety, then, you know, someone, especially more junior or maybe from a group that doesn't feel like they could speak up, we have patient partners sometimes at the table and they're busy people too. So how, how do we make space for people to be able to speak up and, and improve the process. So you need to think ahead of time, how am I going to create that safety so that at the end of the day, if I can ask these really vulnerable questions, people will give me honest answers. And so, okay, those are two things you can do before. Understand the intent and then also think about how you're going to create that safe space during your meeting. Are there any other prep things that you think that people should be aware of? I mean, I can think of a couple that are more just run-of-the-mill things, like make sure you pick a place at a time that's good for everyone. That's another precursor thing that sometimes people forget. And that is harder than it sounds because with the chaos ensued by the pandemic, with schooling, no schooling in the fall seasons, if you have the flu, even when, let's say, if COVID becomes less of an issue, uh, there are sick leave that could happen because we're all seeing sick patients sometimes. There could be things to do with when dinner time is for younger parents, when drop-off is in terms of the morning. These are all factors that play into when a good meeting could be, right? To have them always during the day may make it hard for some of our clinician colleagues to show up having an evening too late and people might be too tired to engage. So picking a good time is actually a surprisingly difficult proposition, even when you start thinking about all the inclusivity that you need to bring to a meeting, right? So I'll raise that as an issue. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I think here we are going down the rabbit hole of the nomenclature of meetings and the um, typology of meetings. So I think what you're pointing to is there's so much in our work that where one person gets really impassioned and exciting and is trying to attract collaborators or, you know, has a mandate to do something that requires representation and you're trying to gather a group de novo, all those factors are going to come into play then about how to respectfully find the compromises for people's time and attention against all the other competing demands. And then there's the standing meeting, which everyone in a, in a more heter- homogeneous group has agreed to gather on a monthly basis or a weekly basis or a quarterly basis for the standing meeting. And I just want to come back to the psychological safety because for the meetings that are routine and where you actually, where it actually becomes harder to be honest because everyone's playing their roles within a, within a department or a group, I think that safety gets, you know, if anyone can change that safety, even if it's a meeting that's been going on for years, but it will take a few meetings and you can't think of it as an event. It's a process. So maybe we can talk about some of the ways, I think the start of a meeting is really important for starting to create the psychological safety. And I'll note that we're not talking about some other meeting theory that you'll read in a lot of self-help books or, or leadership books about, you know, have the agenda and put the agenda with times and make sure everyone knows and don't have a meeting without everyone knowing what you're going to talk about. I think those are familiar to people. There's an interesting debate about when that's good and when that perhaps isn't. I think it comes back to your original observations about theater. But let's think about actually what what would make a meeting interesting no matter who is there or what the agenda was. And, And I think that does come down a lot to engagement, inclusion, and participation. So... I have to say, I'm a really big fan of some form of check-in at every meeting. Hard to pull off sometimes, especially if people are thinking that um, task orientation is the only reason to gather. And, you know, some people start to feel a bit anxious if you're not talking about the thing. But, you know, a really simple check-in. And 
one of the really helpful ones, especially if you're if you're gathering a group that doesn't know each other very well, is could we hear introduce yourself by your name and where you work and what did you have to leave behind to be here right now? You know, that's a great way of acknowledging all of the pulls on people's lives that are probably somewhat at play when they're sitting down to gather. And just sort of it's a way of honoring and respecting how much juggling all of us are doing all the time. And sometimes it helps free people from that thing. It's a, trans, a transition that lets people then maybe perhaps give away that thing that they were stressed about just to be in the meeting now. And it, I think it's also helpful to, you know, offer the appreciation and thanks for, for being in a meeting at the start. So other kinds of check-ins, if it's a group that knows each other well, sometimes we have a faculty meeting four times a year where all our full-time faculty gather. And for a three-hour meeting, we'll spend 15 minutes on a check-in because we're trying to build a team. We're trying to help people know each other better. So sometimes I'll actually do a quick speed dating at the start of my faculty meetings. I've done that for meetings of all of the CEOs and senior leaders of a hospital who are getting together to do some really intense planning. We do speed dating for 10 minutes. So if anyone hasn't tried that, if you get everyone to stand up and you have an inner circle and an outer circle of equal numbers of people. And usually I'll use three questions. So where were you born and what was it like to grow up there? What's your favorite way to spend a holiday? A food from home? If you weren't doing this job, what job would you do? And so you let everyone answer that question, each for a minute, and then you rotate and, and share the uh, answer and listening with another partner. You know, you could do that with 10 people, 30 people, 50 people. It takes 10 minutes. The whole group gets very energized. And there's, a, there's some connections between people that would never have occurred. Sometimes I'll have people do a quick check-in around the table in pairs. So to the person next to you, discuss this for two minutes. Like it doesn't have to be big, but it just, there's something about resetting the clock to be about human connection for a few minutes before we actually get down to the work. I find that could be a really helpful technique. So there's an understanding that any, any meeting is about human connection and the work we have to do. They don't have to be separate. I really love that. Like it really comes down to how do you foster people to see each other and by seeing each other, then there's more potential for them to listen to each other. Cause listen is actually really hard to do. If you're only thinking about kind of like your agenda, your perspective, sometimes we have a tendency not to, not to listen deeply. And I think that by creating that connection, it allows you to want to listen more because the person that also grew up in your hometown that you never knew that they did, (laughs) maybe they were decades apart. Maybe they were just up the street. Maybe you'll listen to them a little harder because you have that connection. And I think that that's a really powerful thing. Now, I would note that in the digital world, sometimes things have to be changed a little bit. So I'm going to share a pearl that I have that I've recently done to do something very similar in a virtual retreat. And so what I did was I used the, I enabled the breakout room function mm-hmm. in Zoom. And then I set it so that there were groups of two or three. And then I jumbled everyone to breakout rooms. And then I brought them back after it had to be a little longer. So closer to four or five minutes. And then everyone was really energized. And I said, okay, I'm going to put you in a re-jumble. So I actually reset the rooms and rearranged them. So they had a random assortment of another two or three people or one or two people that they had to hang out with. And I jumbled them again. So I did basically two random lotteries using Zoom to bring people together. And it was really fun. So just because you can't get everyone in a circle on a Zoom and you don't want yeah, to like yeah. people manually. Exactly. 
you can use other structures and it's not quite the same, um, but it is more or less the same spirit of that. And it was actually yes. really fun and people really loved it. So it, yeah. took, it took me 10 minutes, 15 minutes total. I had to explain it a little bit first, but then once people understood it after the first round, they were like, yeah, yeah, more. And then yeah. <laughs> I think oh, it would have gotten sure. like five rounds of that if I let them. But Absolutely. I was like, no, no, we're done. We, gotta be we keep moving. <laughs> and doesn't Zoom basically have that mathematical function where you can say, you know, there's 16 people in this meeting. How many breakout rooms do you want? Exactly. And, yep. and they'll just, so yeah. that's a, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've done that on some Zoom and it's, it's brilliant. Need cool. to, need to start our Zoom meetings with a bit more of a attention to human connection for sure. Okay. So now we're moving into that meeting phase and you said starting that connection is really important. What are some other things that people can do during the meeting? I know there's a framework that you wanted to bring up. You want to talk about that? Yeah. So more and more, I try to do whatever I can to limit meetings that are sheer reporting and, you know, trying to get people to do like a briefing pair, like a very tiny briefing paragraph that we can read really quickly before a meeting. Or, you know, I think if someone shares a, a five page report before a meeting, no one's going to read it. But if uh, the person who cares about a topic or wants to inform the group about a topic can do something really small or can even discipline themselves to, you know, it's, it's a bit like when, when we're getting, when we're supervising a resident, how much more effective it is when the resident can start with the end and then share a bit of their thinking behind that. In meetings, we actually often, so often do the opposite. There's people that will start the story at the very beginning. And then you, three minutes later, you get to the punchline of why are we talking about this? So trying to speak explicitly speak about and train people to sort of start with what they want from the group and give the shortest report possible. I think that's really important because what I don't, what I don't want to create in meetings whenever I can avoid it is the, is the structure of one person talking and eight people listening. I don't want to do that as the chair and I don't want the meeting to default to that form, which is so familiar to all of us. Because at the end of an hour, there would have been, you know, one or two vocal people occupying the attention and, and oxygen on behalf of, you know, 5, 10, 20 others. And that's just not a great use of time in any meeting ever. So try to limit reporting. And then I find there's a lot of meetings involve processing and then deciding. And the other thing about processing is you don't want that to be one person at a time because that's inefficient and you're not going to, you're not going to surface as many ideas. So I often use, even within a one hour meeting, a structure called uh, one, two, four, all. It's from a series of collaborative structures called liberating structures. It's online. Harry Lepanowitz and Keith McCandless are the authors, but if you just type in liberating structures online, you'll see the menu. One, two, four is a really simple thing. It takes about eight minutes and one would be an invitation for each person in the meeting to write their response to a question. So what do you think is the most important feature for our retreat next December? What do you think is the most important topic? Spend 30 seconds jotting your own thoughts about that. So then after the 30 seconds are up, you cue the group and say, okay, I want you to pair off with the person next to you. And for the next two minutes, I want each of you to share your ideas and why you think that's important. So the two people share and then two minute, two minute uh, reminder from me. And then uh, the two becomes four. So it's one, two, four and the four people share their ideas. So we've spent about four minutes and everyone in the room has sort of done three turns of thinking about an idea. 
So when we do bring it to the big group to say, okay, how are we going to make the decision about the retreat? There's so much processing that's happened and so many more ideas are surfaced that the quality of our decision about the retreat and the discussion that happens then is way, way better. So we're sort of, um, you know, layering that thinking and consultation to be simultaneous before we bring it to the large conversation. It's in line with what we do sometimes in teaching, which is think, pair, share, right? So give people mm-hmm. a moment to think, pair them up, and then they'll be more emboldened to share because now they know that they've run the idea by someone, they've shared it with someone out loud once, they've rehearsed it in a safer spot, and then now they can share it with a bigger group. So you're going to be sharing, like thinking for yourself first, and then you're going to yeah. share with one other person, then you're going to share with three other people and hear their ideas yeah. as well and riff some more. And then, and then the whole group. So I think that really, yeah. really would help, I think, even the most junior person if they had a great idea. If three other people are standing next to you and say, yeah, 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 your idea is really amazing, say it, right? Like, that's going to be huge. And I think that that definitely would engage a lot of people to get out there. And if someone's more introverted, then I guess someone in the group usually is a little bit more extroverted and can, and can either speak on their behalf or present their idea if that's okay with the originator. Actually, it's not, it's not a report back on ideas either. That's the other interesting thing about it is that, so an introvert, introverts can't resist direct questions, right? <laughs> yeah. An introvert wants the invitation to speak. So, you know, to say, tell me your idea about the retreat is going to bring out even the most uh, shy introvert because it's a small conversation. And it may be that when you go to the all form of that progression, the introvert's not going to speak into the big group. But their, their ideas have seeded the conversation. The conversation with the big group isn't about reporting back what is distilled from the smaller ones. It's just knowing that everyone's thinking has moved. You know, you can still use all your techniques of, of drawing out people or asking for explicit input from folks who are quiet. But the group's maturity around any given topic that gets processed that way has moved along. So the, the big group discussion is it's not so impoverished. Oh, very cool. Yeah, that's a, definitely a, a cool way to uh, solicit input and engage your group. So that's yeah. great. And they learn from each other along the way. And then how would you bring it together? So you've got this one, two, four, all. Everyone's got this idea. You said planning a retreat was the meeting agenda item. Yeah. And then what, what do you do with that after? Because I think for a lot of us who haven't led this way before, you might not know how to plan for this unless you have a mental construct of what yeah. you would take with, the, with all these ideas. If there's so, there's so many diverse ideas, how do you pull it all together? How do you reduce it, reduce it down? Because you can only do the one retreat. I guess you could do multiple retreats in future years, but... Next year, you might want to do an engagement strategy like this again, right? So I think that's the power of the uh, simultaneous processing, because when you start with that one, then you, you theoretically have 16 different ideas. In fact, you probably really have only have three, but they're expressed slightly differently in different variations. Like I, I actually don't think any group is ever that diverse to have. I mean, you could ask 16 people what they wanted for lunch. You're still not going to get 16 different things. Inevitably, will you be, you know, there's... There's clustering happens, I think, in groups that we're part of. Back to the retreat idea. So 16 people write a response, and then they start comparing as they move through. And everyone's ideas change in that comparison. So no one's, no one's holding on to their original one because they say, oh, yeah, I didn't think of that. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. Actually, we have overlapping um, ideas here, and we would express our overlap by this single thing. So I actually find the movement is towards a bit of convergence. And in the big group discussion, when you say who, who wants to start with what they think is important, 
you'll hear something. And then I think I would pull for, does anyone have something? I'd love to hear a very, very different opinion to that. So you sort of try to pull for the, uh, the most divergence you can. The gap between what you first hear and the most divergent response tells you a bit about what's going on in the room. And I actually find at that point, it's not that big a gap. So then the, you know, the facilitator's job is to ensure you've, you've sampled the broadest diversity you can. And generally, once the whole group knows where that, what that field is, you can either make a suggestion to say, well, sounds to me like what makes the most sense from what we've heard is this, or if you can ask a person that seems to be that kind of thinker, a bit more of a, you know, convergent thinker, does anyone want to propose the best way forward from all that we've heard? So I actually find it, the solution is fairly organic. It doesn't require a ton of further uh, method. And if it is still incredibly divergent, that's a really, really important thing to understand because you're probably going to need, there's some more information to be had or there's some more digging or there's some more data or there's some things that uh, the group doesn't understand yet if you're, if you're at the end of that and have incredible divergence. I actually find that's really unusual. Yeah, and I think that if there is divergence, it could just be because, for instance, something like a retreat, you might be able to cover multiple topics or you might exactly. have multiple approaches. So you can usually converge by saying, okay, well, we have three hours or we have a whole day. How, yeah. how might we portion this out? Because it sounds like you have all sorts of different things. That's another great point. You know, yeah. you can now have group consensus on a structure that's going to accommodate differences that the whole group knows is desired, right? Because everyone's had a chance to hear from each other about what they want. So that then the next thing makes sense. The group's decided on it together by listening to each other, you know, back to your point about listening. Yeah. And so this definitely has a lot of commonalities with uh, what people might have read about in terms of design thinking, the idea of trying to push for maximal variation and divergence in your ideas, because it allows you to get past your first couple of ideas. I think I think it was Einstein. I might be misquoting, but I'm pretty sure. Oh, wait, no, I think it was Benjamin Franklin. The idea that if you have one idea, it might be okay. But if you have a thousand ideas, one of them's got to be amazing, right? So the idea is that by pushing your group to think more divergently and, and really just push towards more and more in terms of just brainstorming, it can break you out of your usual bounds. And even the most let's say, convergent thinkers, if pushed just for a couple of minutes to think fantastically, can give you some really cool ideas that may not end up being what you do, but end up getting you to listen to some of their other ideas more. And now you can put together the best way forward. Because I think that the problem is, as leaders, sometimes, if you're in charge of the agenda, the temptation is just to go and do the thing that you think is best. Yes, that might actually not be the best idea, right? It's the reason why in the business literature, increasingly, they say, the more diverse your board is, the more diverse your selection committee is, the better decision you'll have. But the reason why is because the more divergent your thinking is, the more choices and opportunities you'll spot. And it's the diverse brains that are there that help you see all those things. It's very constructivist, obviously. But if you can do that, you have to create the structures like you've just... Explained. You need a yeah, method to, yeah, to harness the diversity, exactly. There's no point otherwise, in a meeting with like, all these diverse people and then one person speaks in the end, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, then, then you get the, you know, that old saw, but don't, don't ever bring something up at the meeting unless you know what the decision is going to be. You know, I think that that is 
more up the theater end of meeting, and that's meetings to preserve status quo. If there's a problem requiring diversity, and as a leader, you you impoverish the conversation, then you're creating the dreaded resistance, right? Because diversity will have its way. It just may not be, it may not be in a way that everyone's agreeing on. It may be in a lot of more sort of backroom dissent or uh, sort of undermining, or then the endless theories about change management come in and how do you make people change management is often how do you make people do what you think they're supposed to, which isn't ever going to be a great way of changing anything. So harnessing the diversity in a sense or, or making space for, for people to be heard and for the possibilities of diversity to surface, um, you know, Jeff definitely saves a lot of energy in the end as well. Yeah, I think that increasingly bringing in some of those techniques I've learned from theater, from de- design thinking in the early stages less so theater for when you memorize all of Shakespeare and then are performing. That kind of theater, I don't actually feel like there's a lot to learn about meetings. That's like traditionally how they're kind of like constructed. But I do think that the more inclusive techniques of getting people to be playful, to work with the ideas, to share more, to seek diversity, to go with the zaniest idea. There's an activity called the Triz activity, where you basically take the idea of, okay, how do you do this completely wrong? If I plan to fail. Yeah. The idea is like, it's actually just flips your brain, gets you a different thing. And then you realize, oh, the process that we've been talking about, we do 90% of the things that if we were to redesign this to be horrible, we would do it, right? Like a classic example of that is going to be EHRs, right? If I was going to make an electronic health record that no one could use, I would make sure that you had to click a billion things and make you sign in every five seconds. Those are the kind of things that people will start, you know, like they can really tear things apart a little bit sometimes. But then that's where you can start and think about, okay, well, if we were going to make a better EHR, what, what would that look like? Because now you've thought of all the mistakes that you could make and you could start from a different place. So you get kind of that, you know, the Debbie Downers and Donnie Downers kind of like calibrated. They've had a place to put all of their their thoughts in a constructive way towards building something new. So I think that that's a different technique that you can use too. Triz is actually one of the liberating structures. So that the, the menu for, for running a Triz exercise is, in the, is on the same website. So the website is www.liberatingstructures.com. And then you can Perfect. find a bunch of different things there if you're looking for different activities. So I can feel the energy both of us are having about these meetings where you want diversity and creativity and discovery and, you know, the, uh, the tantalizing attraction of the new, the new and the possible and the change. And I think all of us in medical education or in uh, academic health science are a bit addicted to change. We're like, you know, it's the proverbial candy store. What, what new project? What can we do next? What can we discover? And I want to put a plug in for the, mon- again, the mundane and the status quo preserving and the, the continuity because, you know, the paradox of all this change is that it's only possible against some backgrounds of continuity and maintaining things and some things we don't want to change. And we, we have to rely on some enduring structures and habits as well. Some of those get maintained in meetings as well. So, you know, it's a paradox. How do you keep engagement and excitement and support introverts and have a sense of, of learning and growing when the task is continuity and maintenance, you know, not discovery and change? You know, I think that's part of meetings as well. And to me, those kinds of meetings probably even more so have to pay attention to the human experience of organizational life. And sometimes the change in diversity you're pulling for is confusion or misunderstanding or frustration or, you know, some of those negative emotions that are 
also part of organizational life, some of which can't be fixed or some of which are baked into dilemmas, but making sure people know it's okay to surface those and um, sort of respond with empathy and understanding and Sometimes just having a meeting where everyone knows you're sharing the same dilemma and you equally sympathize with each other is a really important thing too. So I think another opportunity for meetings sometimes is intentionally surfacing frustration or misunderstanding as a given part of organizational life and helping the group figure out if it's what can be changed within that. We're all in structures that are incredibly interdependent and are told to do things that seem ridiculous at times. So we have a, in our department, we call it feeding the beast. There are things we have to do that are ridiculous and make no sense, but are non-negotiable. So how can we use a meeting to name that as quickly as possible and figure out the, the easiest way to do something that's mundane and just part of the job? So I think really normalizing and surfacing those kinds of emotions that come with organizational life is a, also a really important part of meetings sometimes. And it shouldn't be ghettoized as a negativity that's, that's, that's a bad thing. Agreed. Sometimes yeah. working in, in universities is really, really hard and frustrating. And you're not a bad person to think that. In fact, it can be really freeing to normalize and surface that as part of uh, meetings as well. Yeah. And I think as a leader, that's another thing that you can take out of the design thinking playbook. In design thinking, you're often listening to end users to try to figure out what their pain points are. Yeah, um, yeah. And so having that kind of orientation to be like, okay, so can we just riff on some pain points that we have in this domain can be a really great way for people to kind of bring those things forward. And I think that even though change writ large, like big new projects, all that kind of big scoping stuff that you talked about is something that really gets us excited. The little changes that you can do to your team's operations, like you said, okay, how can I run this meeting next time better? How could we involve more people? How do we get more people at the table? Those kind of questions, if asked properly, can really be the change platform to be able to bring yeah. our agency to the table. And yeah. then it's about those little QI projects, right? So everybody doesn't like to enter their CV a certain way. Is there a way that we could think about a different allocation of resources to support people doing that? Is there a way that we could harness digital technologies to augment yada, 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 right? Like, I think those little changes at the table every single time can make the whole experience better. And hearing people's pain points is a way to reframe that in our minds as leaders, I think. Yeah. So the last thing I want to sort of emphasize is a really another fun thing to try in a meeting is how you end it. I think most people would be familiar with the power of you know, ensuring there's some mechanism for the action items to be agreed upon and shared. Some meetings where minutes must be taken. I've seen the technique of having the minute taker just take them on the screen so that everyone can see what's being said and then they don't have to do it after and the action items are all there. Like there's lots of things you can do to sort of um, ensure the the data that must be preserved is collected and shared either during the meeting or just before the end of the meeting. I'm also a big fan of a checkout, a meeting checkout. And again, you can use different techniques for checkout. Sometimes it is a CQI of the meeting. You know, you do a quick whip around, name one point in the meeting where you're really engaged. You could do a whip around about what was the point in the meeting that you, you felt really distanced. So you can choose questions that have the group reflecting on the success of the meeting. A really powerful checkout that I think leaders should think about doing at regular intervals is an appreciative checkout. 
So it might be, depending on the size of the group, it may be name a, name a time in the meeting where someone said something that um, really struck you, that was really powerful or effective for you, that helped you see something in a new way. So folks are uh, sort of appreciating one, one another. Another one is just like, turn to the person beside you and um, give them feedback about something they're contributing to the team that you really value, or again, an idea they had. You can sort of decide in the question based on how the meeting went. But it's almost like you're you're closing the the circle of the team with everyone offering some appreciation and everyone walks out with their dopamine levels high and you know there's another point of human connection. So I think a checkout is a really powerful way too. And then a couple of meetings like that, the psychological safety you described, suddenly it's there, right? Because people know they've entered, they're listened to, and they're appreciated, right? Things all of us need to maintain the the engagement in organizational life. Okay. Wow. That's really powerful. So bottom line is how can we foster connection, listening, engagement, and then appreciation? Like if we can do those two four things, I, I'd love to go to a meeting that you run that has all those properties. And I think that as a leader, isn't that what we all aspire to is having meetings that people look forward to? Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, I think we aspire to, but it's, but a, great, it's, it's a, a great outcome. It's a small, a small goal. It's not like the big goal, but it is something that the process is, is important for people to enjoy too, right? Even if you are uh, conquering, I don't know, all of COVID or creating a new structure in the university, either way, or winning that big grant, right? Like along the way, I think we should try to make our experiences actually worthwhile so that people don't dread doing the things that we want them to do. So definitely, I think that that's a great point. And thank you so much, Kathy, for bringing all of these ideas to the forefront. That's about all the time we have in the podcast today. But I look forward to having another conversation with you another time about some of these other ideas. Well, thank you, Teresa. I I love how much you've been thinking about organizational life and your references to design thinking and teaching and theater. You know, the, the strands of your experience and reflection that you brought to the conversation have been great for me, too. So thank you so much. All right. Well, that was a great checkout. Thank you for demonstrating how to do it. (laughs) All right. Okay. Until next time. Thanks listeners for joining us today. Wow. That was a really awesome first segment of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. And now on to our second segment. Hello everyone. My name is Teresa Chan, as you well know, and I'm your host for this podcast. I'm here with a colleague of mine that I'll introduce as a family and academic physician. He's an assistant clinical professor here at McMaster University, and he wears a lot of hats. Like, I don't know how he keeps all those hats on his head, but Dr. Jason Perfetto is someone that is always around. Like, I feel like he's, he's got so many things that he's off gone to go. I'm always running into him at this meeting, that meeting, that, this gathering, that committee. And I thought I'd bring him in for this podcast because I think he's a pretty inspirational guy for a lot of people. So Jason, can you say hi to everyone? Hi, everybody. And thank you, Teresa. That's very kind of you for that introduction. No worries. I try to be kind because when you're mean to guests, they don't come back. <laughs> All right. So I thought today we'd talk a little bit about your journey to right now, I guess you kind of hold a bit of a leadership role within the medical school. And I know that this podcast is for everyone at FHS, but I think the journey of someone going on a leadership journey of their own and getting involved with education is something that generalizes to, to any 
person, whether you're a rehab specialist or a nurse or a physician in the community or someone that identifies as primarily a family physician and also teaches, right? So I think it's pretty cool to have someone like you who, who does actually work quite a bit clinically, but still devotes a lot of time and energy into your academic work, especially in education. So can you tell me a little bit about like, what the, you're right now the, is it the clerkship admissions director? Is that what yes. it is? So at the UGME, I actually hold two current roles in leadership. Okay. The first is the chair of clinical skills. And then the second is the chair of MD admissions okay. and uh, clinical skills. I've, I've been a part of for, you know, the better part of 10 years with a special uh, extension of my term. And then with admissions, it's been for a couple of years more recently. All right. So that's pretty cool. So maybe can you tell, rewind, rewind to a decade ago. I think I met you when I was still a senior resident and you were starting up the clinical skills program. I remember you pulling me in and having some chats about that stuff earlier on. Rewind to, to that moment. How did you get involved? Like, had you been teaching clinical skills for a while? Like, was it a posting that you saw? Like, how did that all come about? Actually, Teresa, I, I, I remember you and I meeting, and it is probably around 10 years ago. We met at a, at a conference table, and you kept throwing all these post-its of different colors on the table with all different ideas. And that's what guided our, our creative thinking. That was a really fun experience. Clinical skills for me, it's a bit of a funny story because when I started medical school, at McMaster, I went to McMaster for my medical school. My first year, my first clinical skill session, I loved it. I really loved it. And I had this, you know, how, however accurate it was at the point, I remember thinking very deeply, I really think like I'm going I'm to be involved in clinical skills going forward. And I was always very interested in clinical skills. I really enjoyed it. There was something about the art and science of clinical skills that was very attractive to me. And then when I went into residency, I was with a group of residents who were great individuals, great residents, but I was the only one of that, that cohort that was very, very keen to teach clinical skills. And then as a result, I ended up teaching from day one of residency, clinical skills year round. And then from there, I ended up getting into a lot of curricular development and this is what's working and this is what looks good and this is what students like. And then it naturally flowed into a little bit of a career opportunity and that a position opened. And at that time, it was at the Niagara Regional Campus. And I, I started as the, the clerkship lead over there when the Niagara Regional Campus was really starting out. And then over time, the leadership in Hamilton had retired and I was you know, suddenly the most senior person in all of McMaster with regards to clinical skills, even though I was generally still relatively new to the to the medical school staffing and, and faculty positions and, and then it bloomed from there. Well, I mean, I think that kudos to the people that selected you for picking someone on, the, on their way up because, I mean, you've done some pretty cool stuff with it. I think you've really engaged a lot of the trainees in helping teach, like the senior trainees, like residents and stuff. And, and I think that, I guess, when we were residents at the same time, it was not out of the norm for the residents to actually do some of that teaching. But now it's like a fairly rigorous competitive process and you've actually had to, you've actually really blossomed that program. So kudos to you for doing that. And I think it really just, paves the way for that precedent that you can be involved in teaching. And I think that probably sparks a lot of interest in, in our trainees, at least in, in the emergency medicine program that I, I help supervise. And you see people that really, really fall in love with teaching because of that pathway and that ability. So yeah, thanks for, for doing that, because I think that really gives people a chance to really whet their appetite for more, more opportunities. Um, and so how did the MD admissions thing come about? MD admissions is something that I've been very, very interested in for a very long time. 
there's there's similarities between clinical skills and, and MD admissions, but MD admissions has a very unique flavor to it in that concepts rooted in equity, diversity, and inclusion are what well, they're 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 prominent and important through all aspects of medicine and health sciences education for that matter. But with regards to admissions, it becomes the forefront of the conversation. And especially now in, in the last five years, this is the one of the most important parts of, of admissions. That ethics, that diversity component, I found extremely interesting. I am very motivated to, to use power, to leverage, to make changes for equity-seeking groups. And we've done a, a tremendous amount of work in that regard. And admissions especially as being the entryway into medicine actually has a far greater reach than I think most people realize, especially at the community and the, and the grassroots level. So admissions is something that I've wanted to be involved in for a long time. I was very fortunate to be able to obtain that position and we've done a tremendous amount of work and exploration, even in just the couple of day, uh, years that I've been in the position. All right. So that's very interesting because I think a lot of people that think about admissions wouldn't necessarily think about EDI as being such a, a dominant framework that you have to bring to this, right? So for EDI, for the listeners that aren't great with short forms, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And I think that that's something that we do think about in the health professions that as any of the professions, when we bring people in, because we're so hell-bent on making sure that people are successful once they're in, that admissions historically has been seen as this filter to find the best people. And then within the system, we are very nurturing. But there are so many barriers that can come up for people to even get in. And, and we know that income level, socioeconomic status of the postal code that you grew up in, your parentage and whether or not you're one of your parents has been a professional and been a health professional, all of these things can play into the ultimate ability for people to get into the professional school of their choice or, or even graduate studies. So I think that that's something that really is important for us to talk about. So let's dive that in, a little deeper into that. Tell me a little bit more about, historically, we've always been seen as a center for innovation in medical education, specifically within uh, admissions. We have brought in some of those innovations across other schools, obviously. But I think the original kind of big innovation probably would be the multiple mini interview. And obviously, it's probably changed since the time it was first piloted. But is that still kind of a part of what we do here? Yeah, so our our admissions, there's basically two formulas, formula one and formula two, and this is all available publicly. So we, we have to screen and filter applicants to see who is invited to an interview. And then once we get the interviewee list, we have to interview everyone and then we apply the second formula. But the first formula is based equally one third, one third, one third on GPA, MCAT cars, which is like the, the critical analysis and reasoning, which is the old verbal reasoning section and CASPER, which is a SJT or a situa situational judgment test. And then from there, we have an interviewee list, which is about 10% of all applicants that apply. And we, we use the MMI, which ends up being as part of formula two, 70% of the composite mark that determines who receives an offer of admission. The MMI is something that was created and developed at McMaster and CASPER, the situational judgment test, which, see, the MMI is very interesting because where we used to use panel interviews, we knew that there was a lot of issues with the psychometrics. So the ability to say that that test was reliable, it was valid for what we were trying to do. The MMI has really improved in, in that it's much more reliable as there's more scores applied than just one. 
And then Casper, which was really unique, is that it's, it's highly scalable. So Casper is a situational judgment test that is taken online. You can do it from anywhere in the world. And the evidence and the outcomes from Casper, while they test similar things that an MMI does, it is different both in the way that it's delivered, but also in terms of what it ultimately captures. So the MMI and Casper were both McMaster-specific innovations. Very cool. And so I've been involved with the Casper, at least. I think I've been involved in our residency MMI, maybe not the undergrad one. But it makes sense to me that you could add some level of decision-making into your filter before people arrive, right? And so Casper is uh, little vignettes uh, where there's a maybe a ethical or kind of like um, situational crisis or situation that the candidates then type a response to. And I think it's uh, Dr. Kelly Dorr was in, involved in developing that, and she works for I think a, a company now, Altis, that kind of like administers and continues to do science in that. So that's pretty awesome. She's obviously still one of our adjunct faculty, so that's awesome. But it sounds like you also are doing some continued kind of work in making sure that when we screen for applicants, they aren't just talking about their stuff, but actually can watch them, right? So the MMI is meant to be kind of like an admissions OSCE, where people are given scenarios, and then they have to respond in different ways. And, and so it's not just about reliability, you're probably sampling across different domains as well, right? Like, so it's not just about how smart you sound in an, in one time interview, but rather we're watching you across a number of different stations and understanding how you respond to different things. Correct. It's really interesting. Just, just to, if I can comment on a couple of things, the first one is when you look at situational judgment testing and sorry to bounce back to Casper for a moment, but the, the vignette can be something that's quite commonplace. For example, you are a student at a university and your best friend and, and, and peer has asked you because they're very late on an assignment for you to lend them the essay that you wrote so that they can sort of use something similar. What do you do? So it can be that, that simple. The interesting part about uh, EDI is how culturally relevant are those types of questions? That's just an example question to, to different cultures, ethnicities, and backgrounds. And what's culturally relevant to someone that's indigenous from a Northern community, for example, can be very different than someone that comes from a very Italian community in, near Toronto uh, as, a, as a different uh, example. And to bounce to the MMI for a second, the cool part about when you think about an MMI is that a single station performance is actually not truly reflective of your ability to perform in the MMI. But once you start increasing the amount of assessments that you get on multiple stations, hence the multiple mini interviews, the, the ability to get a good sense of what you, who you are and what, how you're performing in the actual MMI gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And the, the, the good sports example that we always like to use is that if you watch a baseball player hit one ball, you can't necessarily make any strong conclusions as to whether or not they're good at bat. But if you watch them hit several balls, hit several pitches, they play in the outfield, you see them before the game, you see them after the game, you see them communicating with people, you get this multiple sampling, you get a much, much stronger sense of who the individual is and how they're capable. That's a really great analogy. Thank you so much. I love analogies. So people already know that I'm a big fan of them. And so thanks for bringing your own without me having to make a really bad choice metaphor. <laughs> All right. So, so that sounds really cool. And so take us to, to the year that the pandemic now hit, right? Because the MMI is an OSCE. Just, 
you know, like it's a multiple stations, lots of people, it's a big to do. And I know that you guys had to, you know, in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, innovate that. And we actually do have a webinar where you've already discussed this in, in a little bit more detail. But what ended up happening? Can you say that into the podcast so that people might be yeah. interested to go tune into your deeper dive there? I think, I actually think this scenario, I mean, not to put, not to raise this as the most interesting of admission scenarios, but I actually really think this scenario is probably one of the most interesting things in admissions that's happened in the last 10 years or more. And basically what happened with us is we had to conduct 550 multiple mini interviews. So that's 550 interviewees plus hundreds of assessors, dozens of staff. It's very resource intensive. And we were the only school in Canada where when the pandemic hit in March, where it became like uh, clear, uh, uh, declared an actual global pandemic, we were the only school in Canada that had over 500 multiple mini in-person live interviews to do. So we had this unique situation where we clearly could not do them. We did not have enough notice to convert to an actual virtual system that was gonna be robust and reliable in the, in the way that we expected. And after a lot of deliberation, we, we ended up coming up with a, a, a very unique plan. And in fact, so unique that we were literally the only school in North America to actually deploy this. And ultimately what we did is we had a multifaceted approach to a lottery system. So we have all of these scores already obtained from Formula One. So these are the people that were invited to an interview. So it's not an open lottery. It's not that anyone could just apply and be considered and buy a ticket. That's not what happened. So over 5,000 people apply and we had already screened by way of using GPA, Casper and MCAT as to who was gonna get an interview. So now we have an interview list. You can argue that almost all of these people are probably deserving and capable of actually starting medical school and being admitted. Nonetheless, you have to go from 550 to 200 and change. And what we ended up doing was, we looked at our, all of the principles and priorities of our institution. We, we ensured that that was in place when we were coming up with the structure of the multifaceted lottery approach. We used local evidence, so what we knew the interviewee list, the top 100 people have a very, very strong chance statistically of getting into medical school after the interview. The pre-interview rank and the post-interview rank for the top 100 people don't necessarily move too much. We still, we still wanted to allow a bit of movement and mobility for the individuals that were started, that were ranked after spot 100. And so what we ended up doing we looked at our equity stream first, which is our indigenous equity stream, and we made offers to those students or those applicants first. After that, we made an offer to the top 100 ranked, based on the, the, the pre-interview score, the top 100 ranked students, applicants. And then the rest of the students, including those who would end up in the, in the, on the wait list, went into a randomized lottery and then they received offers based on where they landed on the rank order list at that point. There was a lot of discussion about what this did to things like implicit bias, privilege and advantage in interviews. Uh, what happens when you don't have a physical presentation as part of the, inter uh, as part of the admissions process? It gained a lot of 
national and some international attention. And in the end, the equity folk actually really felt that it was very fair. And there was a lot of discussion about it. Yeah, I mean, it's such a different paradigm. It's, I mean, it's not completely new, though. Like you, uh, I mean, we've we've chatted about in the past, there are other countries where this is maybe more the norm. And I know that the, one, at least one of our other faculty members, Will Harper, who's in the Department of Medicine, who, who loves the idea of random chance and what it can do once you've got, mm-hmm. you know, all things being equal, right? Like if you know that all things being equal in this bunch of people, they could probably all thrive. Then a, a, lot, a lottery is a very interesting proposition. He's always kind of talking about the he calls it Bavni, <laughs> and it's very interesting to to know that some of these inventions can continue to happen, right? Because you know, like once we had some of the data from the MMI, you know, everyone was super excited about that, and obviously some people might have been, wow, that's a logistical nightmare. There's so many people you have to involve. It's so so onerous. It's so um, expensive. And so you can imagine how some people haven't shifted to that model, even though it has better psychometric properties and maybe is more robust in many ways, uh, there are still kind of barriers to uh, implementation. So uh, lottery, however, is almost the other way. (laughs) It's almost like so random that you're like, it can't possibly be any good or it's also, but it's also so efficient in terms of budgets that, uh, that it has its own merits as well. And so, I'm sure it could go either way. I'm sure you're going to have a whole debate as to whether or not it, all admissions should be this way. But it's definitely kudos to you for innovating in time of, uh, of, of dire need, right? Because in order to be fair, this is something I'm sure that you guys thought long and hard about. It's interesting to note too. So we used a lot of the experience and evidence that came out of the Netherlands because the Netherlands, believe it or not, they've actually been using lottery-based systems for admissions in in medical school for the better part of three decades. And they've gone in multiple directions where they've had completely open lotteries and then they've had optional lotteries, opt-in lotteries, and sort of blended lotteries too. So there's a lot of very interesting evidence that's come out of the Netherlands. And I think it's an uncomfortable conversation for many people because using a lottery system threatens that meritocracy sense. So, or even that sense of agency, I am in control of how I perform. I deserve what I get. Therefore, why would you put my chances of success to mere randomization? But the truth is there is actually quite a bit of randomization and luck that happens in the interview process as it is. And there's a lot of different types of implicit and you know non-implicit bias that can, can affect interviewers and students and so on. So there's, there's a lot of interesting thought behind a lottery and how it plays out. Yeah, it's super interesting. So we'll have to see, I guess. I mean, I'm sure everyone's kind of watching. You have a whole cohort of trainees who will come through this system. And then, and then I guess we'll see what the outcomes are like. If they're comparable, then it probably makes a good perspective on whether or not all of these things necessarily need to be done the way they are, right? All right. Well, thank you very much for the deep dive into some really cool topics that I think are really relevant to, to anyone in the health professions, whether you're someone who's on the side of someone who could volunteer for a CASPER rating and MMI rating, for instance, or maybe you're on the side of someone who aspires to be like Jason someday and bring EDI into everything that he does. I think that this is definitely a, a, a cool to- a set of topics to have talked about. So thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. No, oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. 
If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.